the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll have a conversation with Eric Mock. He is the Vice President of Ministry Operations for Slavic Gospel Association. They have a campaign in the former Soviet Union, Christ Over COVID. Uh, we're going to talk about the work they're doing there and how people are struggling in the former Soviet Union. That, of course, includes Russia. We'll also share a classic interview with Scott Kadersha. He's the author of Ready or Not. Of course, not is spelled with a K. I think you get the idea. Twelve conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Looking at some of the news, Facebook and Twitter on Wednesday removed a video posted by the president, his the campaign and later shared by President Trump that the social media giants claimed contained misinformation about the coronavirus and children's health. This video includes false claims that a group of people is immune from COVID-19, which is a violation of our policies around harmful COVID misinformation. That's what Facebook spokeswoman Liz Bourgeois told Fox News in a statement. In the removed video, the president told um, Fox and Friends that the nation's schools should reopen in the fall. My view is that schools should be open, he said. If you look at children, children are almost, and I would almost say definitely, but almost immune from the disease, end quote. Well, he added that children have much stronger immune systems and just don't have a problem, end quote. In other related developments, the Washington Post issued a major correction after the president uh, botched the Trump Twitter post, or rather after they uh, botched it. And 20 state AGs are telling Facebook to stop the hate and disinformation. Facebook removed a pro-Trump ad aimed at Joe Biden claiming false information. And Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon and the big techs reckoning, according to Ken Buck, Representative Buck, is coming. Mayor de Blasio says Facebook is leasing massive office space in New York City. Well, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham said on Wednesday night that former FBI Director James Comey has become radioactive as more details about his actions during the Russia investigation become public. People are running away from him like he's got the plague, Graham said. The senator also discussed the testimony of former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, who told the judiciary panel an FBI interview of then-incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn in January of 2017 was done without her authorization and she was upset when she found out about it. Graham pressed her on the details of the Bureau's crossfire hurricane investigation and the circumstances surrounding the White House interview of Flynn, at one point asking her, did Comey go rogue? You could use that term, yes, Yates agreed, adding she was irritated that Comey had told her that the Flynn communications with then-Russian Ambassador Kislyak were being investigated. Sally Yates threw him, Comey, under the bus, saying that he went rogue and that he set up General Flynn to manufacture a crime, Graham asserted. By the way, most of the networks chose not to cover that part of her testimony. And other related developments, she says Comey went rogue. Senator Hawley takes Yates to task over the FISA process uh, and the steel contacts that were part of it. Meanwhile, Vice President Mike Pence 
didn't hold back in a television interview scheduled to air today, tearing into the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts, labeling him as a disappointment to conservatives. The vice president made his comments during a discussion with Christian broadcaster CBN News, disparaging Roberts for several cases in which he sided with the court's liberals. We have great respect for the institution of the Supreme Court of the United States, but Chief Justice Roberts has been a disappointment to conservatives, he told Dave um, David Brody, according to the network's website. I think several cases out of the Supreme Court are reminders of just how important this election is for the future of the Supreme Court, the vice president added. Uh, Justice Roberts is drifting away from the conservative bloc, angering Republicans and exciting the left and other developments. And President Trump decried the Supreme Court decisions to shotgun blasts in the face of conservatives. And Tom Cotton blasts Roberts over DACA, inviting him to resign and run for office. Meanwhile, Ben Shapiro praises two New Jersey gym owners who destroyed ignorant Chris Cuomo, he says in a heated CNN interview. And Portland's police chief says the riots are not helping the cause of racial justice, saying enough is enough. And he, by the way, as you might recall, is himself African-American. LeBron James says the NBA won't be sad about losing Trump as a viewer. And a Florida crane accident left two workers impaled and a total of five hospitalized. In the latest from business, New York City is losing hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth as rich residents are skipping town. And coronavirus has prompted a surge in gun sales, sparking an ammunition shortage, an online firearm retailer says. Jeff Bezos, by the way, has sold Amazon shares worth $3 billion. Well, a controversial proposal to replace Minneapolis police was blocked from the November ballot there. And most Seattle residents are opposed to the unconscionable plan to have the police budget, the cops unions union chief says. And as I mentioned, CNN is avoiding on air coverage of Biden's are you a junkie remark about taking a cognitive test. We'll tell you more about that. Well, a poll shows that 8 in 10 African-Americans seek the same or more police presence in their neighborhoods, the exact opposite of what we're hearing from the media and from Democrats. Meanwhile, Portland homicides are through the roof. Well, the new poll has Trump within three points of Joe Biden, closing the seven-point gap the Hill Had it for Biden a few weeks ago. Trump uh, leads among independent voters in that poll. The poll was national, which Hillary won by two points in 2016. Meanwhile, Trump wants an extra presidential debate or at least at the very least to have the date uh, moved up because people are voting earlier. Team Biden will have none of it. And uh, New York has set up uh, COVID-19 checkpoints but no word on any effort to stop protests or riots. And the mayor of Los Angeles, who joined protests without a mask, says he will order water and power shut off at homes that are hosting parties. Joe Biden snapped at a CBS reporter who asks, have you had a cognitive test? Biden's ramblings, cognitively bizarre answer includes him asking the host, a black man, are you a junkie? Ari Fleischer points out that Joe Biden at the National Association of Black Journalists today attempted to show off his cognitive skills, comes across almost totally incoherent. This is hard to watch. And Twitter and Facebook, as I mentioned, removed a post from the president. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal says rising gun sales is sending a political message. The FBI's most recent gun sale figures are stunning. They show that in June, the Bureau carried out 3.6 million background checks, the third highest month on record. Adjusting to reflect checks only for gun purchases, the National Shooting Sports Foundation says this translates to 1.8 million gun sales for July 2020, a 122% 
1.4% increase over July of 2019. The 12,000, or rather 12,141,032 gun sales through this July is just shy of the 13,199,172 sales for all of 2019. Now, these record sales are best understood as a referendum on the riots and the growing lack of confidence many um, Americans have that police will protect them. This is uh, more than National Rifle Association spin. And a bisexual Native American scientist turns out to be fake. The individual was apparently created by a white female who announced the scientist died of COVID-19. That's the non-existent bisexual Native American scientist who turned out to be fake. On this day in history, 1945, during World War II, the U.S. B-29 Super Fortress Enola Gay drops an atomic bomb codenamed Little Boy on Hiroshima, Japan, resulting in an estimated 140,000 deaths. And believe it or not, that was designed to save more lives than going into Japan was prospected, um, was thought to have uh, generated. 19, that was very poorly put, but you get the idea. 1961, Soviet cosmonaut uh, Titov, he becomes the second man to orbit Earth as he flew aboard Vostok 2. His uh, call sign, Eagle, prompted his famous declaration, I am Eagle. 1965, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signs the Voting Rights Act. 1991, on this day in history, the World Wide Web makes its public debut as a means of accessing web pages over the Internet. And 2009, Sonia Sotomayor is confirmed as the first Hispanic Supreme Court justice by a Senate vote of 68 to 31. Finally, on this day in history, 2018, twin Northern California wildfires grow to become the largest wildfires in state history, burning more than 440 square miles north of San Francisco. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I should mention that James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. We'll be talking with Eric Mock later this hour. He's the Vice President of Ministry Operations for the Slavic Gospel Association. We'll talk about their Christ Over COVID campaign and uh, their daily prayer updates as well. Well, the mail-in ballots of more than 84,000 New York City Democrats who sought to vote in the presidential primary were disqualified. That's according to new figures released by the Board of Elections. That's one out of four mail-in ballots disqualified for arriving late, lacking a postmark or other defect. Well, the city um, received 403,103 mail-in ballots for the June 23rd Democratic presidential primary, but the certified results released on Wednesday revealed that only 318,000 mail-in ballots were counted. That means 84,108 ballots were not counted or invalidated. That's 21% of the total. Now, one out of four mail-in ballots were disqualified for arriving late or lacking the other uh, necessary. The New York Post reported on Tuesday that roughly 30,000 mail-in ballots were invalidated in Brooklyn alone. Well, the high invalidation rate provides more proof that election officials and the Postal Service were woefully underprepared to handle the process and the uh, avalanche of mail-in ballots that voters were encouraged to fill out to avoid having to go to the polls during the coronavirus pandemic. Governor Andrew Cuomo signed an executive order to make it easier to vote by mail or absentee ballot. The state also footed the bill by providing prepaid envelopes for voters to mail those ballots in. A 26 percent invalidation rate is astounding and very troubling. 
That's what Arthur Schwartz, who represented several candidates in a federal lawsuit, claiming voters were disenfranchised over the um, BOE and the Postal Service handling of those ballots. Just a harbinger of what we might expect in November and the months that follow while the final outcome of the election is debated. Meanwhile, the New York Attorney General Letitia James announced today that her office has filed a lawsuit against the National Rifle Association and its leadership, including Executive Vice President Wade LaPierre, looking to dissolve the organization. James accused the organization of having a culture of self-dealing, taking millions of dollars for personal use and granting contracts that benefited leaders, family and associates. The NRA influence has been so powerful, she says, that the organization went unchecked for decades while top executives funneled millions into their own pockets. In her statement, she said the NRA is fraught with fraud and abuse, which is why today we seek to dissolve the NRA because no organization is above the law. Now, as the attorney general, she campaigned on uh, opposing the National Rifle Association, which politicizes the office somewhat, but she has kept that promise in her announcement today. Weekly unemployment claims fell last week to their lowest level since the coronavirus pandemic began, although claims continue to be filed at a rate unprecedented before the U.S. outbreak began. Initial jobless claims totaled 1.186 million for the week ending August 1st, below the 1.42 million economists had expected and about 249,000 less than the previous week's claims. Well, continuing claims total 16.1 million, a drop of 844,000 from the previous week. The uh, previous record for initial jobless claims was a week of in 1982 that saw 695,000 claims, which was far below the uh, weekly levels seen during the pandemic. As of the 18th of last month, the total of 32.1 million Americans have claimed jobless benefits as the economy sputters in the wake of business closures and other lockdown measures implemented in March when the coronavirus began to spread across the country. The Oregon Supreme Court today upheld the reductions in public employee pension benefits that the legislature passed in 2019 to help address the state's burgeoning public pension funding deficit and rein in the escalating pension costs and resulting budget problems for public employees. Nine public employees filed suit late August seeking to overturn two benefit reductions the legislature made in Senate Bill 1049, requiring employees to share a small portion of the cost of their pension benefits and putting a $100 $195,000 limit on the final salary used to, in some benefit calculations. Their lawyers argued that the changes constituted an impairment of contract uh, under the state and federal constitutions of taking without just compensation and a breach of public employees' per contract rights. In a unanimous decision, the court rejected those arguments, sticking with the principle it established in its 2015 decision of the last round of legal wrangling over PERS. The legislature is entitled to change employee retirement benefits prospectively for future service, but benefits earned on service um, already rendered are sacrosanct. sacrosanct. The impact of uh, Senate Bill 1049 falls mostly on longer-term employees as well as those at the very top of the state's pay scale. The law redirected a portion of the required retirement contributions that employees make to an individual 401k-like account that supplements their pension benefits to support the pension funds. Employees making more than $30,000 a year and hired on or before August of 2003 are now required to send 2.5% of their salary to support the pension. The remainder of their required retirement contributions, another 3.5% of salary, will still flow to the individual account.
And it was announced yesterday that building on a previous announcement regarding COVID-19 reopening, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, Colorado Governor Jared Paulus, and Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak announced that their states will be working together on telehealth issues. The governors issued the joint statement saying the coronavirus pandemic has heightened the demand for telehealth services nationally and in our states with patients reluctant to seek in-person care due to exposure risk and transportation access issues. Telehealth has offered a way for patients to connect with health providers while mitigating exposure risks. It has also highlighted some of the inequities of our health care system during the COVID-19 crisis. Each state has sought flexibilities from the federal government to expand health services availability through telehealth, modify payment policy for services provided using the modality, and expand the allowable technologies used to provide telehealth services. The Federal Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has recently announced its intention to make uh, permanent some of the telehealth flexibilities afforded during this pandemic. Uh, Telehealth is here to stay. Now, access should be used as a means to promote adequate culturally responsive, patient-centered, equitable access to health care and to ensure provider network adequacy and confidentiality. Patients' uh, confidentiality should be protected and patients should provide informed consent to receive care and specific technology used to provide it. It uh, focuses on equity, on standards of care, stewardship, patient choice, and payment reimbursement uh, changes as well. They uh, concluded by saying, we intend to work with our federal partners on telehealth and invite them to commit to a similar coordinated and principle-driven approach. Also in a uh, press conference, the first month of nationwide enforcement efforts finds businesses are largely in compliance with face covering and physical distances, so says the um, governor of Oregon. Uh, One month after announcing the state inspectors would be conducting weekend spot checks in bars, restaurants, breweries, tasting rooms, and other establishments that serve alcohol to enforce state face coverings and physical distancing requirements. The governor uh, thanked Oregonians and the vast majority of the business owners who have helped to slow the spread of COVID-19. She said one month ago at the beginning of July, the 4th of July weekend, I told Oregonians that we stood at a crossroads. We could either stop the spread of COVID-19 or watch infections and hospitalizations rise across the state, leading to the exposure of businesses and uh, counties again, uh, the closure rather. We still have a long road ahead of us. Infections continue to rise, but I'd like to thank Oregonians, business owners and local officials for stepping up to the plate to help make sure We are all wearing face coverings, keeping our physical distance and working together to keep our friends, neighbors, loved ones and fellow Oregonians safe. Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, Mayor Eric Garcetti on Wednesday announced the city was taking action against those who throw large parties. He called recent gatherings of mostly young people in the Hollywood Hills and Calabasas flagrant violations of health orders. While we have already closed all bars and nightclubs, these large house parties have essentially become nightclubs. He then indicated that he would hold them in similar scrutiny, or rather too similar scrutiny, the same thing we would do with businesses. If the LAPD responds to repeated complaints and verifies that they have been violations at a home, the city will, within 48 hours, have the DWP shut off services at that home. Garcetti also indicated 
uh, also indicated that county health inspectors and other city representatives would be on the lookout for violators. Asked about the legal standing for his action, Garcetti says you're breaking the law. Just as we can shut down bars breaking alcohol laws in places that are in criminal violations, we can shut them down. He said that city legal experts had vetted the measure and found it to be on firm legal ground. We'll find out, I'm guessing, because there will most likely be legal challenges. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Eric Mock. He is the Vice President of Ministry Operations for the Slavic Gospel Association. Their Christ Over COVID campaign is having a significant impact among those who have no safety net in this uh, part of the uh, the globe. And we'll talk more about what they're doing with the body of Christ on the ground in these former Soviet Union nations. Well, amid coronavirus, more than a third of U.S. adults are using cleaning products incorrectly. That's what the CDC is telling us. Apparently, we can't do anything right. We don't wear our masks correctly, but we're not even using cleaning products correctly. Well, in trying to prevent the transmission of the novel virus, more than a third of U.S. adults, I don't know how they know that, are putting their health at risk by using cleaning products incorrectly. According to a report in JAMA, um, the Medical Association Journal, um, they stated in a survey by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that 39% of adults here are using these products and disinfectants in potentially dangerous ways while intending to limit exposure to the deadly virus. So how do you use them in a dangerous way? Incorrect, I get. Drinking or gargling diluted bleach solutions, soapy water, and other cleaning and disinfectant solutions was one of the dangerous practices, the authors said, the survey reported. Who's drinking and garlic, uh, gargling diluted bleach solutions and soapy water? Anyway, and other cleaning and disinfectant solutions. Well, the survey also found that 19% of respondents replied, uh, rather applied bleach to food items such as fruit and vegetables, which, you know, if it's like an orange and you're doing the outside peel, I might get. 18% use household cleaning and disinfecting uh, products on their hands or skin. Some 10% reported um, misting their body with a cleaning or disinfectant spray, while 6% said they inhaled vapors from household cleaners, cleaners rather, and disinfectants. Now, these practices pose a risk of severe tissue damage and corrosive injury and should be strictly avoided, according to the researchers. Now, one quarter of the uh, approximate 502 U.S. adults I'd like to know who they are and where they're living, uh, who participated in the national online survey, which was uh, commissioned by the CDC, experienced adverse reactions to cleaning products or disinfectants. Those effects included uh, lightheadedness, headache and irritation to the eyes, skin, nose and sinuses, as well as nausea and breathing problems. Those who didn't use the product safely were two times more likely to have detrimental effects than those who did not, according to the report. This seems so nonsensical to me, but I guess it bears saying, and it explains why we have tags on things that tell us to do things that anyone with common sense would never imagine doing. I guess this is why. Well, Oregon has pushed back the start of the 2020-2021 high school sports competition, in football at least, to begin January 11th, move the football season start to um, March 16th, and plans to have three distinct sports seasons, according to the Oregon School Activities Association, with more than 80% of Oregon high school starting the school year with distance learning rather than in-person classes due to coronavirus. The OSAA decided to scrub sports competition this fall. 
All sports teams are allowed to practice and conduct workouts this fall as permitted by individual school districts. Football becomes a seven-game regular season with the first practice February 22nd and first game in March. There's unlikely to be a state champion as only one week is planned for postseason competition. First is season two, or the traditional winter sports, basketball, wrestling, swimming. Uh, the first practice date is December 28th, with the first games January 11th and postseason March 1st through the 6th. Next is season three. So we're talking about three distinct uh, seasons for sports. Uh, the season three or the traditional fall sports of football, cross country, volleyball and soccer. All practices begin February competition and all these sports. But football starts on the 8th of March with postseason in April, uh, late April through May. Football requires an extra week of practice, starts competition later in March with one week of postseason, May the 3rd through the 8th. Well, playoff week for football is expected to be one college bowl game style postseason rather than a traditional multi-team playoff. And then, of course, there's season four, the traditional spring sports of golf, track and field, tennis, baseball and softball begin their practice in April. Games start the 3rd of May. That's the the practice starts the 19th of April, which is very late. Games start May the 3rd with a week of postseason competition in late June. So Oregon's high school seasons have been laid out in four distinct, um, I guess they're calling them seasons, uh, that uh, are pushed back a bit from where their traditional times might be. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden raised eyebrows today with comments comparing the African-American and Latino communities, identity politics rumbling again, during an interview that aired at the convention of the National Association of Black Journalists and National Association of Hispanic Journalists. NPR's Lulu Garcia Navarra pressed the presumptive Democrat nominee if he would uh, re-engage with Cuba as president, something she suggests would have an impact on Cuban-American voters in Florida. Yes, the former vice president responded. And by the way, what uh, what you all know, but most people don't know, unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community with incredibly different attitudes about different things. He elaborated, you go to Florida, you find a very different attitude about immigration in certain places than you do when you go to Arizona. So it's a very diverse community, as opposed to, it seems to me, as an African-American The black community that marches in lockstep thinks all the same thing. We are a monolithic community with very little diversity of thought or opinion, according to the vice president, putting his foot in it once again. Well, the Trump campaign, not surprisingly, slammed the 2020 rival, tweeting, "Uh, did Joe Biden just say black people are all the same? Other critics piled on the former vice president as well. One journalist, uh, Gerald Beer, tweeted, there's no way to dress this up, folks. Well, Biden sparked controversy across social media on Wednesday after a preview clip from an interview showed a separate tense exchange with CBS News correspondent Errol Barnett on whether the former vice president has taken a cognitive test. No, I haven't taken a test, the former vice president said. Why the expletive? Would I take a test? Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got to on this program, you take a test. Uh, where you determine if you are on um, if you you're taking cocaine or not. What do you think? Huh? Are you a junkie? Biden told Barnett, who is black. Well, he later knocked President Trump, who previously boasted how he passed a cognitive test, uh, just glossing over the insult to the African-American host. Identity politics makes uh, things so much more challenging to try to make a point. 
But the former vice president has made these sort of, I'll call them gaffes, although he has consistently made the same statements, which tells me they're not gaffes. This is what he actually thinks. Uh, You might recall earlier he made the suggestion that if you don't vote for me, then you clearly are not black, or at least not black enough. The presumption being the black vote is pretty much a done deal. The Hispanic vote, on the other hand, you kind of have to work for that. You have to uh, persuade and convince. But black people, you can pretty much assume that they're going to be voting Democrat. There's very little um, differentiation in terms of one's views. One's faith has no influence. One's lack of faith doesn't influence your worldview. Black people pretty much all uh, uh, think the same thing, just insulting by every measure. Uh, Meanwhile, former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates told the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday that FBI Director Comey went rogue when probing then-incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn in January of 2017. But anyone who relies on the evening newscasts, NBC, CBS, ABC, may have missed it. ABC's World News Tonight, NBC's Nightly News, CBS's Evening News all skipped the story altogether. According to the Media Research Center, the news analyst Nicholas um, Fondacaro who monitors uh, broadcast news coverage, called it another example of the broadcast networks covering up the degree of corruption in the Russia investigation. As Yates told the committee, she was upset upon learning Comey interviewed Flynn without her authorization. They also chose to um, simply omit some of the gaffes that the former vice president has made in his uh, in his speaking over the last uh, several weeks. But that's uh, what they have the prerogative to do these days, pick and choose what flattering and unflattering things they're going to cover of the two presidential candidates. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Eric Mock. He's vice president of ministry operations with Slavic Gospel Association. We'll talk about their Christ over COVID campaign and the former Soviet unions, union, singular. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, I love bringing good news to listeners here at KPDQ, and the Slavic Gospel Association has some great news. Over 6,300 evangelical partner churches have distributed some 1.6 million free meals to 20,000 needy families in the former Soviet Union in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. I'm always um, looking for what God is doing behind the scenes. The headlines are filled with stories of how this crisis, this uh, virus is impacting communities, but God is always at work in ways that we may not, that we may miss if we're not careful to to pay attention. So joining us to talk more about that is Eric Mock. He is Vice President of Ministry Operations for Slavic Gospel Association. He spends about a third of every year traveling to Russia and several nations across the former Soviet Union, as well as Israel, to support the extensive network of churches, some 6,300 evangelical church partners and hundreds of missionaries. And that's significant, evangelical churches in the former Soviet Union, I just want to punctuate. Literally circling the globe at least three times every year, this year might be something of an exception, he travels um, to remote villages in the Arctic Circle, as well as hot spots on the border of Afghanistan and war-torn cities in uh, eastern Ukraine. He joins us today to talk about some of the work of the Slavic Gospel Association that we can rejoice together in. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. That's that's quite an introduction. You're hired. <laughs> well, you all are doing some great work, and I know we're so preoccupied with how COVID-19 is impacting our own communities. It's always very helpful to look outward and see how others are struggling and how the body of Christ is coming together to meet their needs. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in the former Soviet unions and some of the countries where you and the churches on the ground there are ministering. 
Well, I know this may sound a little bit like a, a one-liner, but too often we get focused on our circumstances and not on our Savior. And mm. in this case, uh, what really for most is a very, very difficult circumstance. And in the countries that we are serving, these churches exist in an environment that is wholly different than what we have in America. Even in the middle of our difficulties, we have a little bit of a safety net. Uh, there are uh, government programs, state programs, and other other things that are accessible for the people in the middle of losing jobs, in the, little, uh, in the middle of uh, health issues that are going on. But in these countries, when you lose your job, you lost your source of income. When you, when you have uh, run into health issues, their health system is just barely functional. And so with the pandemic and already in a difficult financial situation, uh, many people have found themselves in a very difficult situation. So what SGA has done, which is really exciting, since 1934, we have always got behind the faithful Bible teaching church that has proclaimed the gospel under the years of persecution and who continue to proclaim the gospel today. So basically we never skipped a beat. We've been able to provide food for these, uh, these churches uh, to purchase groceries and carry groceries in the gospel uh, to families that would have never graced the door of the church before. And so now we're hearing story after story where people have, who were resistant to the gospel are now seeing God's grace in the provision of, 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 of food for their needs. And then along with that, uh, open ears for the gospel and people are coming to faith and, and, and it's pretty amazing. Oh, praise God. With every tragedy, with every difficult circumstance, God always provides an opportunity. And I'm so grateful that the Slavic Gospel Association and the uh, the partner churches uh, didn't look at this, um, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic um, as a pause in their work, but see this as an opportunity. And people are responding to the gospel. Tell us some of their stories. Oh, sure. I would love to tell you two. I'm going to give you two trains of thought. The first, the first thing I want to talk about is the kids, because very, very often the kids suffer the most. One of the mm-hmm. programs that SGA has is a, a program called Orphans Reborn. Uh, we're working, uh, helping churches right now reach about 11,000 orphan children, which is just a drop in a bucket compared. Russia alone's got over 700,000 orphans, but 84% of these kids don't get adopted because 70% of them have parents that have not completely lost uh, their parental rights. They go into these boarding schools and uh, they they go into boarding schools and temporary shelters while they're kind of caught up in the court system. Well, during this crisis, uh, a lot of these kids actually were sent back to the homes and in their homes, they're already being sent back to parents that were alcoholic, abusive and drug addicted. And these kids are suffering. So uh, it's pretty amazing when you hear these these people, such as north uh, north of Moscow in, in a region called Ivanovo, uh, where they were working already with these kids, and when they got distributed back to the homes, uh, they were able to go to the homes and bring food. At, literally, these kids had no food. Parents were drunk, and uh, they mm-hmm. came with food and continued ministry, and these kids are, 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 are able to get food on the table, and they're saying, you, you are our family, and they, they are hearing the gospel message, and they're hearing about a God that will never leave them and, and forsake them in the midst of a, uh, a, a bro- the brokenness of, of the family they have. And, and so uh, we heard this also in the war zone, where we're hearing uh, the war zone of, of eastern Ukraine. Sorry about that. Uh, you are hearing uh, orphan children that are being 
pushed back into homes. And so these churches are reaching out to these homes. And so it's pretty exciting to hear that. But you had talked about uh, the, the cold, the polar cold. That's up in a, in a region called Yakutia. Yakutia is a, is a region the size of India. And it has uh, cities there that are known as the coldest cities on the planet. I've been there and it's been 58 below zero. Well, in 1984, the first Christian couple arrived, literally the first Christian couples that weren't in a gulag. And they brought the gospel and they continued to minister. And so they told us one story in their village where they were ministering to a family where the husband was drunk and his brother was drunk and the husband was beating the wife and the wife was taking care of five kids, and they continued to minister through what we call in Christ over COVID. They're taking groceries to this family, continuing to share the gospel with this family. And the drunken brother actually came to faith. The, the husband stopped beating the wife, stopped drinking, got a job, and now the family is coming to church. And all that prior to this crisis, they were an unreachable family. And now all of a sudden, hearts have been open to the gospel and you're up in this forgotten region with, with the people that are literally first generation Christians. And they were brought to faith by the couple that first showed up in 1984. <laughs> and, and then I, and I heard last week, five ladies had come to faith in that same little broken down village that they're ministering in. And uh, there's, there's, there's almost a thousand believers in a region of more than a million people and uh, these are these are first generation Sakha believers, and how amazing it is that the door was open through hardship. Oh, absolutely, I know. I read one story about an unemployed Russian soldier who uh, was very um, critical of Christians. He ridiculed them, and under this circumstance, he too, once he was blessed with the resource that this Christ over COVID campaign is providing, he came to faith in Christ. Just another example of what God is doing in the hearts of people who recognize their need for him. Well, it's amazing, and I, I think his name was Oleg, and and he used to ridicule Christians for their faith, uh, considering them weak, and then all of a sudden, here he is with a with a child, and he can't feed his own family. And the church came to came to bat for him, and uh, he turned around and said, "Hey, this is real," and and so he's coming to faith, and he's a transformed life. You're right. That's a that's one of the great stories that we put out. You know, and I'm so encouraged. It reminds all of us that God is at work. Whatever our circumstance happens to be, if we are faithful, if we are open, if we're sharing the gospel, if we're sharing what we have with others, he can use us in significant ways to draw people to himself. For listeners who would like to learn more about the work of Slavic Gospel Association, and in particular, the Christ Over COVID uh, campaign, how, uh, how best can they connect with you? The easy way is to go to our website, the www.sga.org, and then go to backslash COVID, C-O-V-I-D. Uh, you'll find out more about what we're doing, and there's even a place to sign up for a daily prayer guide. Yes. Um, I'm, I, the stories you're reading are the ones that I'm writing and sending out, and then we have a couple of pastors that are writing the devotionals. Those are, those are just prayer guides, just praying for the people. I, I encourage your listeners to sign up. And uh, just get these prayer guides. We're gonna we're we're on prayer day 113. We're just gonna keep writing them. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Eric Mock, thank you so much for your work and for drawing our attention to how God is moving in the former Soviet Union, uh, so that we can be encouraged and to pray for those who are coming to faith in Christ and those who are ministering in these very challenging areas. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you. And just real quickly, I wanted to let you know that the Russian and Ukrainian and Cossack and Belarusian pastors are praying for the people of Portland. They are joining with us as the body of Christ to pray for peace in Portland. Thank you so much. Again, Eric Mock is Vice President of Ministry Operations for Slavic Gospel Association. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. In this hour, we'll share an interview with Scott Kadersha, ready or not, spelled with a K, 12 conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. That'll come up in our next segment. Meanwhile, Portland police declared a riot on Wednesday for the second night in a row and used tear gas to disperse protesters gathered outside a southeast Portland police precinct. That demonstration reiterated the growing divide among Portlanders who protested police violence every night since late May. Confrontations between police and protesters shifted from downtown, which has been sort of the historic heart of the demonstrations, to police buildings across the city where a faction of protesters now gather every night. Downtown protesters haven't drawn a large-scale police response since the 29th of July. That is the uh, day federal officers um, commanded security of the federal courthouse. Calls for calm gained momentum downtown at the same time state police took over. Protesters planned to show black-made films after nightfall on Wednesday for crowds to, uh, that were gathered there. Well, many of the protesters have shifted from the downtown area to police buildings across the city. Uh, in recent nights, demonstrators uh, converged in front of a Second Estate, um, or should say Second Eastside Precinct and the Police Union Building where protesters and Portland police clashed on Tuesday. The gathering spot on Wednesday was the Portland Police East Precinct on Southwest 106th Avenue, more than six miles from downtown. That precinct is in a residential area. It's surrounded by apartments. About 100 people arrived uh, shortly after nine after marching a short distance from Floyd Light Park. The crowd chanted, no good cops in a racist system. Within 15 minutes the crowd arrived uh, of the crowd's arrival Portland police used a loudspeaker just about 9:30 uh, telling peaceful people to leave because of criminal activity a journalist from the Oregonian saw someone point green lasers at security cameras uh, people also sprayed paint on the cameras and a glass door at the front of the building uh, was eventually broken Uh, Most of the windows had been covered with plywood. Demonstrators tore down some of those boards. People didn't leave after the police issued the warning. The size of the crowd increased to about 200. Most people chanted as a few people started taking down plywood from the building, exposing those glass windows and a door. Some pushed dumpsters in front um, of the building to form barricades in the street. While police called the gathering unlawful at 945, told people, To leave immediately, several wearing yellow T-shirts formed a line and linked arms at the south end of the street. The yellow T-shirts are a uniform of protesters who identify as mothers. They repeated Black Lives Matter. (sighs) Near the entrance of the building, someone used a metal tool to repeatedly hit the glass window. Police said demonstrators cracked the glass doors at the precinct. Someone soon started a fire in a trash can next to the entrance. By 9.55, the police declared a gathering Uh, The gathering, a riot. They warned that if people didn't leave, they would be subject to arrest or dispersal by impact munitions or tear gas, giving them something of a warning. They arrived 10 minutes later, forced the crowd to move. Officers in riot gear set off stun grenades as they pressed people north past the fire and the precinct. They also used CS gas, which is a type of tear gas, citing life safety issues created by members in the group. 
Well, the city was sued back in uh, June and July over local police officers' use of the tear gas and a federal court order issued in early June temporarily banned Portland police from using it unless officers believed someone's life or safety was in danger. Wednesday marked the first time police have used tear gas to disperse protesters since federal authorities relinquished control of the downtown federal courthouse. After police pressed most people to leave, charred traces of the fire remain near the entrance of the building. An officer approached a journalist from the Oregonian who walked past and said, uh, that he had to move. He believed there were there might be um, an explosive device placed in front of the building. Two hours later, uh, they recovered the device. It was not explosive, but it was intended to appear to be so. Police haven't disclosed any more details. As they pressed the crowds away from the precinct on Wednesday night, dozens of officers and protesters formed dual lines around 108th Avenue and Washington Street and faced off for several minutes. Some of the officers were state troopers identified by their patches. At 10.20, the uh, police line advanced on protesters, forcing them to move east. At some points, they ran toward the crowd. Some officers picked up debris, um, homemade shields left behind in the frenzy. Police started to retreat just about 10.30. Most people stayed in the area. One altercation occurred between a person who lived nearby and several protesters. After the woman walked out of her apartment wearing a swastika, both sides shouted insults at each other. Neighbors were mixed in their reaction to the crowd, at least... um, Uh, Some bystanders got into the shouting match with protesters over screaming all lives matter, and it went on and on from there. Meanwhile, Portland police chief says enough is enough. This isn't about addressing civil rights issues and has called for an end to it. We've also learned that there's something they're calling um, protest tourism. They come from out of town. They shoot through the fences. They size up the building and the park outside. They're the protest tourists who for weeks now have um, uh, come to check out the site of the Battle of Portland outside of the Mark O. Hatfield Courthouse and Justice Center in Southwest 3rd Avenue. As mainstream media has uh, swapped the Portland hipster uh, narrative that stuck with the program um, for one of fire and flashbangs, spray paint and tear gas, tourists have been walking the streets preferring to see for themselves. And so we have people who are actually coming to enjoy the... um, destruction of property and the defacement of public property, uh, I guess that's a form of entertainment. I'm not entirely clear. Meanwhile, Portland community members held a a news conference to address the recent spike in gun violence across the city of Portland. Um, Portland police said there were 99 shootings in July. That's up from 35 in July of last year. Uh, Portland police said that there were um, was a significant increase and the news release from the mayor's office said the purpose of the news conference was to strategize and reimagine viable solutions. So leaders um, addressing the uh, increase in gun violence. But I'm wondering if that's going to be linked at all to the reduction in law enforcement and the need for law enforcement within communities, reformed law enforcement addressing um the issues that are of concern, but still law enforcement in these communities. I quoted a study earlier in the day that suggested that the vast majority of African-Americans do want law enforcement in their communities at current levels or at um, levels that exceed current levels, but don't believe that they'll be treated with respect if they have an encounter with police. Something can be done about that, but the police presence 
everyone recognizes, or at least a vast majority recognizes, is important. Meanwhile, investigators probing the devastating blast in Beirut that killed at least 135 people and injured 5,000 more, destroying homes throughout that area, are pointing to a Russian ship docked in the city's port for nearly seven years without appropriate security precautions that officials warned was a floating bomb. Well, the Russian vessel named M8, uh, MV Rosas carrying agricultural fertilizer with 2,700 metric tons of ammonium nitrate and an in route to Mozambique hit a financial snag and docked in the Beirut port in 2013, according to legal documents and Lebanese, uh, Lebanese officials. The Washington Post reports that the director of customs there repeatedly sent letters to the judiciary over the years and warned that the cargo was the equivalent of a floating bomb, but the warning went unheeded. Uh, Dahar repeatedly asked officials to remove the ammonium nitrate from the port because it posed a significant danger of exploding, he said during an interview uh, on Wednesday. Well, he said flagging the risks to authorities was extra work for him and his uh, predecessors outside of his responsibility to prevent smuggling and collecting duties. He says it was the port authority's job to monitor the material and to store it appropriately. Meanwhile, China's state-approved churches that were forced to close due to COVID-19 are only permitted to reopen if they praise the Chinese Communist Party in sermons and extol President Xi Jinping, according to a new report. Religious Liberty magazine Bitter Winter reports that the Religious Affairs Bureau in Zhengdao, the capital of the province of Henan, released in mid-June a list of 42 prerequisites for churches that sought to reopen. Among the requirements, churches were ordered to intensify patriotic education and study China's religious policies. Additionally, churches were ordered to promote the Four Requirements, a nationwide campaign launched in 2018 to promote the... Sinicization of religion. I'm not sure what that means, but the campaign involves requiring religious communities to ritually raise the national flag, promote the Chinese constitution and laws, core socialist values, and China's excellent traditional culture. Instead of a normal sermon, the preach um, the preacher talked about the patriotism of medical workers during the epidemic and their sacrifice to the state. A member of the Three Self Church. Uh, told Bitter Winter, and these are the churches that are approved by the government, not the underground church. These things are important, but political things are discussed for half of the time. Many believers complained afterwards. Well, churches that refused to comply with the uh, uh, demands were not permitted to reopen. In Hainan, one church was not allowed to reopen because officials didn't approve the pastor's sermon. None of the 11 places of worship in our area was approved for reopening. A deacon of the church told Bitter Winter, we were busy preparing to meet the requirements for reopening, but the government made things difficult for us in every respect. As you're praying for the, the former Soviet Union and the churches there ministering the gospel, remember the church in China and the pressures they are currently under to reopen during this pandemic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear a classic interview with Scott Kadersha. Ready or not, 12 conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is divorce is a very sobering fact of life. In fact, recent Pew Research and American Psychological Association findings reveal that nearly 50% of married couples in America divorce. Well, for those who remarry, the rate is even higher. Marriage pastor, conference speaker, and popular blogger Scott 
Kadersha. He knows divorce is an ugly reality, even for Christian couples. And believing that with every big problem comes an even greater opportunity, he helps couples wrestle through the critical conversations that need to be uh, had uh, and the questions that need to be answered before marriage. In his book, Ready or Not, spelled with a K, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. Ready or Not is a compilation of essential lessons and real-life stories of more than 5,000 pre-married couples, and it's a resource that can help you think through and prepare for a marriage that will last. Well, Scott Kadersha is the Director of Marriage Ministry at Watermark Community Church, where he has served on the marriage team for more than 12 years, Through this ministry, he's helped more than 5,000 couples answer the question, ready or not. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife and four sons and joins us today by telephone to talk about his latest book, again, titled Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs, not needs to have rather, before marriage. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Georgine. Very good. It's good to be here. Thank you. Well, writing a book on marriage, anticipating some of the tough questions in the 21st century, is really uh, an essential for young people, or for that matter, anyone who wants to marry and to have a relationship that uh, that lasts. Now, you have been in marriage ministry for many, many years. How would you answer the question, what is the state of marriage in America today? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, for many couples... Uh, they don't really know what they're committing to. And so that we talk about marriage less and fewer and fewer couples seem to be getting married every year. The ones who do get married uh, tend to have this mentality that they're in it until the happiness ends and then they move on to the next one or they coexist for the rest of their life as an unmarried couple. Uh, marriage is in esteemed, maybe like it used to be. And so it's not the the same picture of marriage that maybe many couples used to have uh, back when I was growing up, or uh, it's a different view of marriage and what the world is, or our country has often taken on something that's really important to God and, and is so foundational to our society and culture. Well, it, it's important that so many young people have not had the opportunity to witness a happy marriage that uh, that lasts. Does that play a significant role in their understanding of the prospects of them succeeding? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good observation. You know, many couples, you know, man and woman grew up in, in homes where mom and dad either were very unhappily married or grew up in a broken home and so never really had this, you know, solid picture of what really marriage is supposed to look like. And so they're gaining their perspective of what marriage is from social media, from television, from culture. They're defining it as you know, the culture and the world around us define it. They don't necessarily have a, a biblical worldview or a picture of what really God wants to see happen in marriage. And so they're looking to everybody else, to all the wrong places. Somebody or, or something is teaching them, and they're learning it from someone or someplace, and they're really not getting the right picture of what it's intended to be. Well, I appreciate that your book, Ready or Not, allows them to have a clearer picture of what's required for a marriage to stay together and really why marry at all. Now tell us a little bit about your family, your church, and the ministry that you lead. Yes, thanks for asking that. So I'm married to Kristen for 17 and a half years. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you, thank you. (laughs) She she was actually one of my teachers when I was in grad school, which uh, sounds scandalous, but it's not nearly as scandalous (laughs) as it really was. Uh, and so uh, we, you know, we met in Atlanta in 2000. Or we met in the late 90s and got married in 2001, and moved to Dallas in 2002. And I've been part of a church in Dallas called Watermark Community Church, as you mentioned. And 
get to work with couples all over the spectrum, you know, pre-married, newly married, enrichment, crisis. I get to work with new parents, which is a lot of fun as well when they're expecting their first child. And uh, speaking of being parents, you know, we've got four boys who are 14, 14, 12, and 10. So we've got our hands full at home. With, uh, <laughs> you do. <laughs> with, it, it's, it's awesome. It's loud and obnoxious. And, uh, and I wouldn't have it any other way. We're having a great time raising what, you know, really what I hope will be, will be the exact thing you just said, Georgina. You know, we hope our four boys will grow up and have a really good picture of what marriage is supposed to look like and can be the kind of guys who will lead their homes really well in the future. You begin your book in the first chapter by asking the question, as your readers uh, would, what is the point of marriage anyway? And I think you, you, uh, most of our listeners, you wouldn't be, but most of our listeners would be surprised at the range of answers that you might get to that question. But you focus their attention on what is the original purpose of marriage and why is it worth uh, sticking it out? Yeah, so the, you know, the picture of marriage, if we look at around a, a culture, you see you know, couples are living together. Couples will move from one relationship to another. Uh, marriage could be between a man and a man or a woman and a woman or whatever, you know, the world tells us is what people will say. Whereas, you know, marriage is really intended to be a picture of God's love for the church. It's this sacrificial covenantal relationship between one man and one woman in the way that God designed it and created it. And so you and I don't get to define it or make up what it is when it's already been established as this beautiful relationship that, that God designed to show us really his deep love for us. It's a gift to us and something, frankly, that way too many of us just kind of abuse or neglect. Yeah, but I, I appreciate that you begin there because that is a question that um, many people, even married people, are unable to answer. Mm-hmm. Now, as a, as a person who works with uh, pre-married couples, are there signs that you see with these couples that suggest that they will, in fact, succeed or... Uh, markers that suggest or uh, warning signs that say they're really not ready for marriage or marriage or they're they may not be compatible at all. Yeah, that's good. So you know, one thing would be, uh, and we've actually asked our leaders this. We have a large ministry we lead for pre-married couples, and just said, what are some common characteristics of couples who will do well in marriage? And so they're looking at the couples that they lead on the pre-married side and then watching them down the road when they're married. And one of the most common characteristics of couples who do well are those who are really teachable. And so they're humble. They, they're willing to hear where they're falling short. They're, uh, you know, their significant other can lovingly correct them or point them in a different direction or, or challenge them might be a better way to say it. Uh, a mentor couple, they let them speak into the into their life and say, you know, a mentor sees something that's not the best, that they're willing to accept uh, a challenge in that way. Uh, there are couples who will open up their lives to others, and so they'll let friendships speak in and wound them or sharpen them, and they don't choose to do this isolation lone ranger thing. And so the flip side of that would be couples who are individuals who are prideful, who isolate, who think they've got it all figured out. Those are couples that we would say, that's, that's a big warning mm-hmm. sign. You're kind of signing up for that for the rest of your life. And so you want someone who's teachable and humble and will invite others in rather than isolate. Generally speaking, how do you think the church does in approaching uh, the subject of premarital counseling or preparation and then beyond the, uh, the taking of the vows, walking alongside uh, couples to help them succeed? Yeah, so what, what I've heard so many times over the years is, uh, is a lot of churches say that they don't do premarital counseling 
because couples don't want it, because they say they don't need it. They've got all their stuff together. And I, I just think that's a wrong, wrong view because when I look around me, when I see the couples who come to us for counsel, they're, you know, they're growing up in a pornified culture where they're, they've grown up looking at porn. That's all they know. They've been with multiple partners sexually. They don't have a good picture of marriage. They're living together. They're sexually active. Some of them are pregnant. Uh, some of them might be, you know, they might be, they might both love the Lord but just have a really wrong view of marriage and relationships. And so uh, if we're not reaching those couples, then we're not doing the job within the church. And the church has just, frankly, I think been really weak in this area because we neglect putting good resources towards preparing couples for marriage. And then the other side of it, I'm Mm -hmm. so glad you asked, most churches do nothing for newlyweds. And so they might come to the church to get married or to get premarital counseling, and then once they're married, they disappear until maybe they have their first kid. So, you know, years ago, we made the decision at our church, we're going to do everything we can to prepare them well for marriage, and then we're also going to do everything we can to help them start their marriage on the right foot as newlyweds, to build their life on the right foundation. And so we do special groups for newlyweds to help them connect with others and grow their marriage from the from the minute they say, I do. That is so wise because mistakes made early on can plague a marriage for many, many years. We're talking about the book Ready or Not, and that's spelled with a K, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have Before Marriage. We'll continue our conversation with Scott Kadersha in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Scott Kadersha. He is the Director of Marriage Ministry at Watermark Community Church, where he served on the marriage team for more than 12 years. Through that ministry, he's helped more than 5,000 couples answer the question, ready or not. He lives in the Dallas area with his wife and four sons, and uh, he joined us to talk about the book, Ready or Not, 12 Conversations Every Couple Needs to Have, before marriage. Well, let's talk about the book and how it's structured, because I think these are such important questions. And I love that in my hand is one volume that asks some of the most essential Mm -hmm. questions uh, when you're considering marriage. And I would even go so far as to say, if you're a newlywed, this is a great resource as well. So walk us through it a little bit. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, So, you know, really looking at couples over the last, you know, 13 years, 12, 13 years, and we just decided to, or, you know, I decided to address all of the major issues and questions that come up. And so things like, what is your view of marriage? How do you communicate and resolve conflict? Uh, spiritual intimacy. And so what does it look like to build our lives together, you know, individually and then as a couple on the right foundation? Uh, that's chapter three. Chapter four is, um, uh, is what do you do with those differences? And so what if one of you has an, you know, is extroverted, the other one's introver- introverted, one of you uh, loves to, to save everything, the other one throws everything away, so how do you deal with those differences? And frankly, you know, every couple has, uh, you know, an unlimited number of them, and so yep. are you going to just kick them out when you're tired of them, or are you going to learn how to live with each other in the right way? And then go on to talk about money and family, sex, uh, emotional intimacy, children, Friendships, communication, all our uh, community, all the all the big topics that typically come up that couples have questions about. And I think it's important to point out that the book is structured in a way it uh, you have questions that are intended for uh, individual reflection. 
um, discussions that are designed to help determine marital readiness. So a couple who either goes uh, through the book as a couple or with uh, others who are mentoring them, it really gives a, paints a clear picture. This is where we stand. We may not quite be ready or we are fully prepared mm-hmm. or these are the challenges we can anticipate and prepare for. Um, so you're not just going into this major commitment blind. That's right. Yeah, so what, what I wanted to do was give a really biblical picture of each of those topics. I wanted it to be really practical. And so, uh, you know, we live in a culture that really doesn't tell us what to do or how to do it. And so I wanted to give them really clear tracks to run on, uh, you know, and hear the specific questions you, you should probably think through or talk about. And then I wanted it to be really authentic and real. And so the way I went about that is instead of making up fake scenarios with couples, I actually interviewed 12 couples I know really well, got their story and then told their story and taught through each of their kind of personal testimonies. So we get to learn from the good decisions they make. We get to learn from the mistakes they made. And so every chapter is is really, really authentic because I want couples to have a a very real view of the good and the bad of marriage. Yeah. yeah. Now, how do you see this uh, this book being used to its full potential? A couple sitting down with one another, or what? How would you recommend uh, this be applied to most uh, effect? Yeah, I think you know a couple reading it separately and then coming together and talking through it as boyfriend girlfriend, or like you said, as newlyweds, and then ideally you get another couple who's further down the road, maybe a couple who's married. And you get the opportunity to uh, to talk through it with them. And so, you know, instead of just reading about uh, communication and talking about it with one another, you actually get to bring somebody in who's walked through this in real life and and get a picture. Hey, what does this look like for you in, in, in real life? What is it? Look, how do you communicate and resolve conflict? But books are always helpful. Mm-hmm. But I think it's much more helpful if you can bring in real people to help you navigate what it really looks like. Now, at the end of your book, you have a section that I think is also essential. Uh, You answer questions like, how do we break up, stop having sex, and eight other frequently asked questions. For example, what if we've been sexually active with each other but want Mm -hmm. to stop? That may be in the back of the minds of of individuals, but, you know, to whom do you talk about that? Uh, And you offer some practical and biblical advice uh, for living up to your commitment to sexual purity as you're anticipating marriage. Yeah, so that's, you know, part of my story, Georgine, is I I was not, I did not make good decisions on the pre-married side and, uh, you know, was sexually active and heavily involved in pornography. And, and so when I, when I really trusted the Lord with my life, I still had all this experience and, you know, these expectations. And so I'm largely writing out of it. Not when I ask that question is I get the struggle Mm -hmm. and, and it's very real, and uh, especially if you've been active with one another. And what I would tell that couple is just because you've done something in the past doesn't mean you're destined to repeat it in the future. And if somebody's life is truly yielded to the Lord, they're under the control of the Holy Spirit. They don't have to continue to give in to those desires that are, frankly, a good thing to have, that you want to have that desire, but you don't have to give in to it and sin uh, and so the saying that, you know, we absolutely can, through through the Lord, through his leading, you know, leading and guiding in our life, we can say we're going to wait until it's actually the right time. Uh, again, not what we decide is right, but what God says is right. 
another question that you asked that I think is so important. I remember before uh, my husband went to my father to ask for my hand, I had purposed in my heart, if my father said no, that either meant no, we were never to be married or no, this wasn't the right time, but I wasn't going to move forward. But you asked, what if our friends and family don't approve of our relationship or engagement? That's an important element. It may not seem when you're in the height of, uh, you know, of love, may not seem all that important, but it is a really important question and you offer direction if you're in that situation. Yeah, that's that's such an unfortunate situation that comes up, you know, quite often. I think any of us would want, if a couple is going to move towards marriage, the ideal would be that everyone would celebrate that relationship. They'd be excited about it. Parents would be willing to, you know, invite people to come do it, help pay for it, whatever it might be. And so our hope is that any couple who gets married would, would be celebrated by those around them. Uh, but if you get to that place and you want to ask, you know, you ask for the the woman's hand in marriage, you go to the father and he says no, uh, I would look at a couple different things. Mm-hmm. One, I'd want to know, is that the collective wisdom of everyone in your life? And so what do both sets of parents say, other family members, other friends? And if it's just one individual who says no, even though it is a very important one, the parent, if that goes against what the rest of your community and the rest of the world would say, I would still pay attention to parents, but I would also not let them be the only voice. And so, for instance, let's say, uh, you know, I've heard uh, I've heard couples uh, who are you know a, a mixed ethnicity relationship, and parents say no to that because uh, because their child is going to marry somebody who's a different ethnicity. And if they're both followers of Jesus Christ, that's that's the most important thing. And so, the color of the skin, the background, that should not be a reason why a parent would say no to a man and woman coming together in marriage. And so, you know, parents will sometimes say no for that reason. Uh, You know, other times they might not have, the parents might not have the same view Mm -hmm. of the gospel. And so that might be a reason why parents would say no. And so in those situations, I'd go to the rest of the community. And you don't want to dishonor your mother and father, but you don't have to have their permission to move forward. Well, I'm so but it glad. it is a really loud voice that you've got to be willing to listen to because it is your mom and dad, and it, they probably love you and want the best for you. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It just so happened that my father was a wise man. He was a follower of Jesus, so his counsel could be relied upon. And the scenario you just outlined, I was marrying someone outside my ethnicity, so it was a very similar situation. So if it's wise counsel, if it's godly counsel, it can be embraced. If the circumstances had been different, I might have had a different uh, approach. You also address what if one of the pair wants a prenuptial agreement? Should you combine your bank accounts? Um, uh, the the role of pornography that may have been part of the life of the couple or the individual, just really practical questions. And I think a lot of young people in particular might be apprehensive bringing up in any other context, but you address it in a way and uh, direct their attention uh, to what the scriptures have to say in a very practical and loving and approachable way. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Those are even, even hearing you, you know, read back that list of questions. <laughs> I'm going, man, what was I thinking? Taking those on? Right. Well, clearly they're real questions. Yes. You're yeah. somebody who knows what the real questions are and you care <laughs> enough about the people that you're counseling and your readers that you're going to address them, even though it makes all of us a little bit uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, it's it's a it's a great book. And again, I would recommend it. In fact, I can think of a couple of people that I know are getting married in the next uh, six to 12 months. I'm going to gift them a copy of the book again. Ready or not. Twelve conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. Uh, Scott uh, Kadersha is the author with a uh, forward by Gary Thomas. And the book is published by Baker and available in bookstores. Thank you so much for this resource. And I think it's going to be a great blessing and help to lots of people who are anticipating marriage uh, and want to want to make that commitment for life. Thank, thank you so much for having me and for the kind words, Georgine. Really, really grateful. Thanks so much for joining us. Scott Kadersha, author of Ready or Not, spelled with a K, 12 conversations every couple needs to have before marriage. I know uh, Dan Rice and I went through premarital counseling. It was very useful. I felt that we were mature enough. We were ready. But there were issues that were brought up in the course of that that helped us, I think, avoid some of the major conflicts or at least anticipate some of the challenges that we hadn't even thought of. So it's a great way to go. If your church doesn't offer it, this is a great resource. It may be a resource you and your church might want to, to use as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Vice President Mike Pence portrayed a pretty stark contrast facing America during his visit on Wednesday to Florida. The vice president said, we stand at a crossroads of freedom. Before us lie two paths, one based on the dignity and worth of every individual and the other on the growing control of the state. One road leads to greater freedom and opportunity, and the other road leads to socialism and decline. He went on to say the choice we face is whether America remains America. He wrote uh, his words, drew strong applause from the supporters gathered in the hotel ballroom before whom he was speaking. It was his third and final stop in the Tampa area, where he was greeted with flag-waving, sign-toting supporters along the route with the motorcade. The vice president also visited a women's medical clinic and a Baptist church on Wednesday. Well, throughout the day, the vice president touted the administration's pro-life achievements and commitment to religious liberty, while offering a warning to supporters of what the future might hold. He spoke forcefully in defense of law enforcement and against efforts to defund the police in America's major cities, saying, President Trump and I know that the men and women who put on the uniform of law enforcement every day are the best people in this country. He said to applause with this president and this administration, we will always back the blue. We will always stand with the men and women on the thin blue line of law enforcement. We're not going to defund the police. Not now, not ever. Earlier the week, in the week, the Wall Street Journal reported that 36 of America's 50 largest cities have experienced a double-digit rise in homicide rates. Two cities, Austin and Chicago, have seen homicide rates skyrocket more than 50% compared to last year. The vice president said, we don't need to choose between supporting law enforcement and supporting our minority communities. Rather, The president has done that every single day, and we continue to deliver. We will support law enforcement. We will support our minority communities with liberty and justice for all. One would assume in there he means reform in areas where that is warranted. Well, the Daily Signal traveled with the vice president aboard Air Force Two as a member of the press pool, a point of contention for some journalists at the White House press corps. The New York Times published a story Wednesday evening saying member of conservative think tank takes on reporter duties on Air Force Two. So that was an issue. But the uh, staff of the form of the vice president invited the Daily Signal after the White House Correspondents Association wasn't able to find a volunteer to travel with the, the uh, vice president. NBC News, The Federalists' Molly Hemingway, and CBN News' David Brody 
also accompanied Prince on the trip. Well, in an interview scheduled to air today, he told CBN News about the importance of the Supreme Court. He also bluntly stated Chief Justice Roberts has been a disappointment to conservatives. He cited the president's uh, appointment of conservative jurists among the administration's top accomplishments, adding other achievements that include protecting the sanctity of life and religious freedom, rebuilding the military, reviving the economy, cutting taxes, reducing red tape, enacting U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and creating jobs. The vice president said President Trump has kept the promise that he's made to the American people, to the people of Florida, and especially to people of faith. Well, his early afternoon visit to a pregnancy center marked the first time a sitting vice president appeared at such a medical clinic, according to pro-life Susan B. Anthony List. Afterward, the vice president spoke to the organization Life Wins 2020 Tour at a nearby um, Starkey Road Baptist Church. The vice president said life is winning in America, and I believe life is winning because of the compassion and love that has been shown to women and children. Well, the vice president spoke about his meeting at the clinic with uh, Kia Farrell and her son, Ollie Farrell, who turns one next month. Farrell considered an abortion at Planned Parenthood before she turned to a woman's place. When she found out she was pregnant, she turned uh, to this organization who gave her the care and support she needed. Today, she met the vice president during our Life Wins tour to share her story. Well, Health and Human Services Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan, who preceded Pence's speech, he uh, cited the department's Title X Family Planning Services rule as an example of the administration's commitment to protecting the dignity of human life. There's never been a more pro-life and pro-family administration, he said. Pence said the Declaration of Independence put life at the center of the American experiment, yet 47 years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision in Roe v. Wade that fraudulently challenged the right to life. He warned that decades of pro-life progress could soon be erased. No more than ever, or rather now more than ever, pro-life Americans need to make our voices heard. You need to speak out and become involved, he said. The radical left wants to silence pro-life Americans. Well, this was a significant trip for the vice president. Speaking later in the day at a Faith in Freedom rally in Clearwater, the vice president said the foundation of America is freedom, that the foundation of freedom is faith. He said, I'm more convinced than ever than of two things. America is a freedom-loving nation, and this is a nation of faith. Both of those things will be challenged and are being challenged right now in this country, in my own editorial note. And we will be deciding, as he um, uh, mentioned early on, uh, saying that the choice we face is whether America remains America and the founding principles remain in place. Certainly, we are not a perfect constitutional republic. There are and have always been uh, uh, the need for improvement, for shoring up the promises that have been made and uh, cashing that promissory note. But nonetheless, big decisions will be made in this consequential election. Well, with cases of coronavirus still hampering Florida, the, the vice president acknowledged the challenges facing America. He said the Trump administration was forced on um, helping, focused on helping all Americans, saying we're opening up America again. We're opening up American schools again. I'll make you a promise as um, you in the Sunshine State and people all across the country continue to contend with this pandemic. We will not rest until Florida and America put this coronavirus in the past and we bring Florida and America back bigger and better than ever before. It is a tall order. It will require re-election, but this is a campaign year and we are very close to the November election that will determine who the next president of the United States will be if, in fact, we can count ballots, um, if we make a decision that is sound with regard to all mail-in ballots and we uh, have a 
reliable election come November 3rd. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.